0: Uh, The teaching text today is Exodus 5, 1 through 9. Uh, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with uh, straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. This is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the word harder for the people so that they can keep working. Pay no attention to the lies. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Attaboy, Greg. Have you guys ever had a moment where you were driving and you arrived at the destination and you're like, how on earth did I get there? I'm preaching a little bit like that this morning. <clears throat> we have a nine-week-old, ten-week-old, I can't remember, because we're not sleeping. And things have been okay, and last night was not Okay. Feel sorry for us, especially Emily, but also reserve a little pity for me. In the, during the first sermon, I just wanted to do this in the middle of talking, but there were all these people here listening, and I they like came to hear something. So I need my charismatic Pentecostal friends to be active listeners today to help me remember that I'm preaching. And uh, so if you hear something good or true, tell me, say amen, do something like that. And uh, you have full permission to be your charismatic selves today. Okay, well, in our text today, and you can keep your Bible open if you want to, in our text today, we've got the first clash of God and empire, the people of God with like a government authority between Moses and Pharaoh. We've got the showdown. I'm going to use the word empire to describe the political power of nation states, to refer to human systems and structures of governance. And there are lots of empires that we run into in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, Egypt is a great example. We've got Assyria. We've got the Medes and the Persians. Um, But there are a couple archetypal, like, like these are the big empires that we run into in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the big empire is Babylon. And Babylon represents not only this nation, but Babylon represents the human structures and systems working against the purposes of God. Uh, there's another empire used in the New Testament, but it's known under a code name, at least in, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about Babylon, but it's not referring to Babylon, the ancient empire. It's referring to another empire, Rome. And these two empires represent like human strength and intelligence, amassing glory for itself and working against the purposes of God. The apex of Rome's opposition to the things of God and the exercise of their authority is the crucifixion of Jesus. In the crucifixion, we see a perfect example of empires doing what empires do, which is crucifying your enemies to maintain power or control. Now, because we as the people of God inhabit space and time, and inhabiting space and time means we live on planet Earth, at least for now, unless Elon Musk has his way, We're going to run into empires. We live in the middle of countries and cultures where there are governing authorities, and we need to learn how to think well as the people of God and how we posture ourselves toward the empires of our time. And it simply cannot be overstated how consequential it is to think well about how God and empire relate to one another. We need to have the mind of Christ in this matter. And so, in doing so, we need to examine the historical record. We're going to do that a little bit today, beyond the short lifetime of the United States of America, but but examine the historical record to discern how, on a macro level, God wants us as His people to be positioned in the world. Now, sometimes empires are friendly toward the things of God. Sometimes empires are quite hostile toward the things of God. Sometimes they're permissive or ambivalent. But a key for us in learning to think well about this is not just to think pragmatically, what's going to get us the most practical benefits, but we should think instead principally or idealistically, how should the people of the kingdom of God relate to the kingdoms of this world? Now, the Exodus story is, uh, and, and the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh is a confrontation between Yahweh and the gods of Israel. Between the people of God and the people of the empire. And it's a contest to determine which power is ultimate. Which power is going to have the final say? Who gets to define reality? Who's in charge? It's clear in the story that Pharaoh believes it to be himself, that the empire he represents represents like the apex of authority in the world. Uh, Pharaoh's power certainly is imminent, and by that I mean it's like in your face. When Pharaoh makes decisions, it affects day-to-day life. You feel it, you sense it, like you have to deal with the consequences of it. And Pharaoh rejects Moses' request to go and let the people worship, and he flexes his imperial muscles by maintaining these brick quotas but eliminating uh, the supply to be able to, to meet them. And Pharaoh is effectively just taunting Moses, urging him to attempt to retaliate, though he thinks his efforts would be in vain and futile. He's bloated by his own self importance and drunk on his own authority. Now, I want you to imagine that you're alive at the time this is happening. You're like, you're like just a Hebrew slave and you hear that this guy who left for like 40 years but who lived in Pharaoh's household has now come back and he's like trying to get the people's freedom. Would you wish he would be doing that? If you're a Hebrew slave, like, like, how are you thinking that you wish the people of God would relate to the people of the empire? And by extension today, like, how do you think we should relate to the human regimes and rules and republics in our world? what are our options? Uh, Today, we're going to look at five options. I'm going to spend the majority of the time on the final two options, Uh, but but the first would be to withdraw. Chelsea, why don't you take over this for me, okay? The first would be to withdraw. Now, for the people of, of Israel, to withdraw would be a desired posture or strategy, but certainly not one that was realistic, They didn't have the luxury of just burying their heads in the literal sand and pretending that the empire of Egypt uh, didn't exist. But certainly others in history have tried to do this. I think in in the the first century, there's a community known as the Essenes that was living out in the Jordan River Valley. There's a site called Qumran where uh, archaeologists have discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which has illuminated for us a lot of early texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Essene community withdrew from polite society, from life under the empire, in order to try to preserve a faithful remnant. And they were literally just waiting for the apocalypse, waiting for the end of the world. They said, we're going to try to maintain a community unstained by the empires of our time. In all likelihood, John the Baptist was in the Essene community or akin to the Essene community. A more contemporary example of someone who had a withdrawal strategy or posture toward the empire would be the Amish. The Amish are a community I think very highly of, a community that has continued to live in very countercultural ways, withdrawing from society in order to maintain their own ideals and principles of living. Uh, many of them go without things like electricity or um, or cell phones, Though so they're adapting some for the longest time. They have withdrawn in order to preserve as a way of coping with the empire this is one way that we can posture ourselves Uh, another way that we can think of it is is a a strategy might be to defy the empire to defy the empire now the pharaohs were afraid that israel would do this and so they put slave masters over them A strategy of defiance looks like the people taking their own destiny into their own hands now, for the people of Israel, they were a, a unique—they were in a unique situation because in Genesis, God had told their forefathers, I'm going to fight your battles for you. God was not prompting them to defy Egypt or any of the empires of the world. God said, I'm going to do this myself, fighting your battles for you. Instead, He said, you don't need to fight, you need to trust Me. There's the prophecy of Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation. At the time of Jesus, there was a group of people who were eagerly waiting to defy the empire of Rome. They were known as zealots. Uh, Peter, the apostle, was among them, just waiting for like, the right moment to start like, like throwing fists. Uh, Another another famous insurrectionist or or zealot or one who wanted to defy the empire of Rome uh, shows up when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate comes in front of the people and says, do you want me to release to you Jesus who is called King of the Jews or Barabbas the insurrectionist? And they say Barabbas. Uh, The zealots finally decided to revolt and defy Rome and in 66 AD they started their revolt and Rome came down with force and fire upon them. Uh, for, for three or four years, they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And then in 70 AD, uh, the city was burnt with fire, the temple was destroyed, and that strategy of defiance was squashed. One posture in relating to empires can be to withdraw, another can be to defy. A third strategy would be to merge with the empires of our time. A merging strategy looks like if you can't beat them, join them. For for Israel, this would have looked like doing their best to endear themselves to the empire of Egypt. A merging strategy means accepting the state of affairs and integrating into the society of the empire. Merging may require you to bend on your ideals or your standards, but there may also be some felt gains uh, that are realized. At the time of Jesus, the Sadducees took a merging posture Uh, They compromised with Rome, but they gained some space for themselves. At the time of Hitler's rise in Germany, many Christians, German Christians, adopted a merging posture. The cost of speaking up against the Third Reich was immense, enormous. And the the chances of success were very, very unlikely. To survive, a merging posture often spiritualizes one's faith. And ignores like actually living this out in the real world. Emerging uh, posture sounds like look, we don't need to actually stand up and oppose Hitler. Let's just do that in our hearts. From the outside, unfortunately, there's limited visible difference between defiance in the heart alone and compliance in the real world. Merging is often effectively just capitulating to the empire. You can uh, withdraw, you can uh, defy, you can merge. But the fourth, the fourth posture is the one that's just the most tempting, the most thorny, the most problematic for the people of God throughout the ages, and it's to attempt to convert the empire, to convert the empire. Now again, imagine you're a, a Hebrew slave, and you think to yourself, man, wouldn't it be great if we could get Pharaoh on our side, oh man, wouldn't it be great if we could get him like, like sensitive to our cause, maybe even lead him to be a believer? What if we could win over the hearts of the power brokers and make them amenable to our cause? What if we could go from being a persecuted minority to being a powerful political majority? How much better would it be for the purposes of God in the world if we could wield real political power? Well, we don't have to just imagine this as a purely hypothetical exercise. For the first three centuries of the church, Christians were well accustomed to life as a persecuted minority. On numerous occasions, I've referenced a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And for those of you who are feeling disillusioned with the American church and just need like a palate cleanser, read Kreider's Patient Ferment of the Early Church as a way of like recentering you and like hearkening you back to the original vision of Christ's church in the world. In the book, Kreider is trying to understand precisely how and why the church grew in the first centuries and why on earth anyone would choose to become a Christian. Because to become a Christian in the first three centuries was A, exceptionally difficult to do. There was no such thing as like a baptism Sunday where you just showed up and you filled out a form and you got dunked and you got handed a t-shirt and now you're in the church. That is not something that existed in the first three centuries of the church. In order to be baptized, a person had to submit to a process called catechesis. And because church leadership knew how difficult it was to be a Christian in the Roman Empire and how costly it might be to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, Uh, They they, they knew that they had to train people to withstand difficulty. And they knew that in a world like theirs, the genuineness of a person's faith was demonstrated not by what they believed, but by how they behaved. They didn't just baptize anyone willy-nilly. So catechesis started not with ensuring a person's orthodoxy, how they believed, but ensuring a person's orthopraxy, how they behaved. As a catechumen, a person going through catechesis, in your first steps, you might be required to quit your job or, to, or like to work with your boss to reframe your responsibilities if they required you to do stuff that was out of line with the teachings of Jesus. You'd have to be trained to control your sexual impulses. You'd stop participating in ritual idol worship. You'd have to learn to make it a habit to care for the poor and meet the needs of the poor. And before you proceeded much further, you'd have to sit down for this thing called the first scrutiny, where an overseer would sit with you and with your sponsor, and the overseer would ask your sponsor, how's she doing in her progress in in catechesis? How's he doing in conforming his life to the teachings of Christ? And they, not you, would give an account for your life, trying to determine if you've actually conformed your life to the teachings of Jesus. If you pass the first scrutiny, then you might begin to study the Gospels. Then you might be able to learn Christian theology and orthodoxy. But at this point, by the way, you're still not allowed to come to Sunday worship. You're still not allowed to receive Holy Communion. This process could last three years or longer. And then you'd sit for what they called the second scrutiny. And if you made it past that, Then you'd you'd be invited to go to a river where you would strip naked and they would baptize you in running water. Then and only then could you go and be received by the church in a worship gathering and, and receive for the first time Holy Communion. To become a Christian was exceptionally difficult in the first three centuries. In addition to being difficult, it was costly to become a Christian. Baptism could mean a literal death sentence for you. It could mean being kicked out of your family. It would likely mean being ridiculed by your friends. For many, one of the most practical consequences of baptism was being kicked out of the trade guilds, uh, functionally being like, like worked out of the economy. We've taken for granted in our society that it costs us almost nothing to be baptized, or we've been allowed to believe, we've been permitted to think it costs almost nothing Few of us face these kinds of real social consequences. But that was not the case for the first Christians. Probably three years ago, I had the honor of baptizing a couple from a Middle Eastern country that was very hostile to the gospel. A couple of you in the room were there when it happened. They'd come to the United States to pursue higher education and had just been welcomed by hospitable Christians, folks who loved Jesus. They started to attend a church in town. They were warming up to the teachings of Jesus and decided they were ready to join God's family through baptism, to leave behind a theology and a way of life and and to take on a new one. And the security threats for them and their family back home were so intense, we determined it was not safe for them to do it on a Sunday morning on the church, so I got to baptize them in a person's home and we gave them a Bible and it meant something when I saw her wearing that cross around her neck. It meant something. To be baptized could mean to enter your grave prematurely. This was normative in the early church. So, why on earth did the church grow if it was so difficult to become a Christian? It was so costly to become a Christian. How did they do it? Well, as the title of the book suggests, they grew patiently, they never rushed the process. They definitely didn't grow because of the implementation of a strategic plan that a committee had put together. They believed that God was actually orchestrating human events, that Jesus actually is the Lord over the cosmos, and that He was guiding all things toward a good, good end. So their responsibility was just to cooperate, to join with Him in forming disciples, trusting that God was working in the process, and then abandoning outcomes to Him no guarantee of success but we just do our thing the process was inherently nonviolent and noncoercive no one was compelled or forced to become a christian but once a person resolved to set down the ancient path and learning to be a disciple of jesus the process was immersive and communal and rigorous and transformative And the end result was both a community and a bunch of individuals so delightfully different from normal people in the Roman Empire that folks were magnetically attracted to them and just wanted to understand why and how. The Christians were just like doing their own thing, caring for the poor. They started the first orphanages. They defied social stratification in Roman society. They honored and empowered women. They practiced racial reconciliation. They worshipped with passion and joy. And in doing the slow work of forming disciples, people were attracted to the Christians and threw their own name in the hats. They wanted to be part of it. They grew patiently. Uh, Additionally, Kreider said there was this other thing that was happening that in the middle of this work of just forming disciples, it was like there was a life force just bubbling up. He called it ferment, like fermentation. A sense that like there was something beyond them that was causing more life to grow, to blossom. They had no external structures or systems to support them. They neither had nor sought political power. But as they quietly, faithfully did their thing, God caused the church to grow. They believed, they actually trusted at the cost of their lives. They believed they were truly and completely in the hands of God and they acted like it. They endured amid threats and experiences of persecution, being burned at the stake, thrown to the lions, expelled from the economy, kicked out of their families. And they patiently persevered and saw God bear His arm and power as they relied exclusively on Him. But something changed. In the year 312, a man named Constantine, a general in the Roman army, had a vision of the cross and he heard these words. He claimed, In this sign you shall conquer. Constantine, who had become Constantine I, the emperor over Rome, uh, said to have become a Christian. And in the year that he claimed to become a Christian, it's worth noting that he uh, executed and ordered the executions of his wife, his father in law, his three brothers in law, and his son. Some Christian. But he did something that was completely unprecedented in the first three centuries of the church. He refused the process of catechesis. He refused to become a catechumen, to submit to church leadership, and go through the process of conforming his lifestyle and his allegiances, his engagement in the world with the teachings of Jesus. And you just have to understand this was not a thing. You can't just say on your own, I am a Christian, and refuse this process. But Constantine did some things that were really favorable to the church. All of a sudden, they 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 don't have to keep worshiping in catacombs and homes. He builds these magnificent places where they can go and worship publicly and without apology. The pastors and the bishops start getting invited to these swanky gatherings at the Imperial Palace with the influencers and the tastemakers of Rome. Christianity is legalized throughout the empire, and pagan religions are, are punished and penalized. All of a sudden, the church is respectable. Is that good news? Isn't that what you would hope for and, and pray for? Well, John Wesley, who was an Anglican priest and then accidentally started the Methodist movement, had that, this to say about this. He said, persecution never did, never could give any lasting wound to genuine Christianity. But the greatest wound it ever received, the grand blow which was struck at the very root of that humble, gentle, patient love, which is the fulfilling of the Christian law, the whole essence of true religion, was struck in the fourth century by Constantine the Great when he called himself a Christian Christian and then poured in a flood of riches, honors, and power upon the Christians, most especially upon the clergy. Constantine made it easy and popular to become a Christian, and we have been like paying uh, the price for that ever since. Constantine enacted several completely historically unprecedented realities uh, for the primitive church. First, he blurred the lines between church and empire. He Blurred the lines between church and empire. To support Constantine was to support the church. And to support the church was also to support the emperor. So if the emperor required you to kill in his name, well, you did that because the empire secured your religious liberties. He blurred the lines between the church and the empire, and the blurring of the lines blurred loyalties and allegiances. No longer did the church have to depend on the power of God. They had the power of the emperor. No longer did the church have to labor patiently. They could work powerfully and politically now. No longer did they have to rely on the ferment and the activity of the Holy Spirit. The emperor compelled compliance to Christ. He blurred the lines between the church and the empire. Second, painfully... He separated discipleship from salvation. He separated discipleship from salvation. We already know that he refused the process of catechesis, but he also insisted on doing something else completely new. It was being baptized on his deathbed. This was not something that happened because baptism always followed catechesis. But his example normalized this practice. And this brought a shift from focusing on a person's transformation, the the transformation of their behavior, to the transformation of their theology, their thinking alone. No longer did they have to actually obey the teachings of Jesus. As long as they mentally ascribed to the abstract ideas being proposed by Christianity, then they were good to go. It effectively spiritualized the faith, de-emphasizing the way that our faith should impact the way that we engage in the real world. And we're still feeling the effects of this today. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus did not say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make believers. No, he said, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Salvation, discipleship, like they're they're intertwined. but, but, But Constantine separated this. As a consequence, the majority of us behave as if discipleship conforming our lives to the example and the teachings of Jesus is purely optional. He blurred the lines between church and empire. He separated discipleship from salvation. And third, he introduced a hunger for political power into the Christian imagination. Introduced a hunger for political power into the Christian imagination. And once this appetite... This lust for political power entered the bloodstream. It has not left. Summing some of this up, Alan Kreider said, Constantine saw hypocrisy as a necessary byproduct of a new form of mission, one that he invented, that valued numbers more than lifestyle. Rationality, how you think, more than habitus, how you live. And when Constantine used state power to promote the church, from the vantage point of the Christian tradition, he was tampering with God's missional work in a way that was both unnecessary and adulterating. A few years ago, there was a group of of evangelical Christians, I think mostly worship leaders, who had been invited to the White House to meet with President Trump. Now, I'll say it is not insignificant for any person to be invited to the White House to meet with any president. My comments here really ultimately are not about President Trump. But what grieved me about the meeting between the president of the United States and these worship leaders was the picture of the group together that followed. You got a group of 20 or so worship leaders standing behind the Resolute desk, standing behind the President of the United States, seated in authority and power. One worship leader reaching out, if only I could touch the hem of his garment. And all of them marked by this expression of exhilaration and glee. Oh my gosh, we're with the President, we're in the White House. Their faces tell a story of being overwhelmed with flattery and starstruck. They're in proximity to power, and the story the picture tells is that they love it. The picture looks like the church becoming the chaplains and the champions of the American empire and beneficiaries of its favor. But we must not love the favor of the Empire. We must not seek after imperial benefits as of first importance. We must not crave the Turkish delight of the white witch or lust after the one ring to rule them all. Such hungers bewitch and betray and distort and distract the church of Jesus Christ. They dilute our allegiance to Christ. They render discipleship as optional and diminish our belief and our need for the power of God. The way of Jesus advances patiently and personally, not politically, and certainly not through coercion. Paul instructs a young pastor named Timothy uh, in how we should relate to the rulers of our time. He says, we should pray for them, for kings and emperors and presidents, but for a clear end. He says, I urge them that prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving and intercession be made for all people, for kings and for those in authority. Why? Why? that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We pray for our political leaders, certainly, but chiefly that they just get out of the way, that they'd remove impediments to our living peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, not incentivize the way of Jesus because of political benefits, and certainly not punish people who believe differently. Brian Stone, in his book, uh, Evangelism After Christendom, said this, he said, to be the sort of church that is a company of disciples who follow the crucified and resurrected Jesus, but who likewise reject the world's calculus of power, will likely mean that the church will find itself operating in history as a minority, albeit as a creative minority, and from a position of weakness and marginality rather than a position of power, we must embrace patience, obedience, and even martyrdom rather than effectiveness, control, or success. We'll have to relinquish winning as a proper end and we'll have to relearn the truth that there is nothing we can do to bring about or extend God's reign other than bearing embodied witness to that reign in our life together as a church. It's how we live together. It's how the gospel has shaped our lives. That's all we've got as our witness in the world. Even if we could convert the empire. Does not history teach us that we might gain the world but lose our soul? What should we do instead? Not withdraw, not defy, not merge, not attempt to convert the empire. No, what do we do instead? We outlast the empire. We faithfully outlast the empire. The people of God have outlasted Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, you can extend the list, and we will outlast any other empire in our time. The Church of Jesus Christ will outlast the United States of America. Israel walked out of Egypt without having to raise a sword. And certainly Moses, but increasingly all the people of God, paid attention to what God was doing and watched God fight their battles for them. It was not theirs to withdraw or defy or merge or to try to convert Egypt into being a Christian empire. Their calling was to be faithful to God, to do the things that he says and abandon outcomes. And God prevailed. In times that are friendly to the church and unfriendly to the church of Jesus Christ, our call is to sacrificial faithfulness, to be the church, to just do our thing, to to study and learn and inwardly digest and strive in our life together to reflect the teachings of Jesus, to be characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, to care for the poor, to seek the lost, to practice hospitality, to intercede for the world, and to trust the patient ferment of the Holy Spirit, abandoning outcomes and fearlessly facing the consequences. Now, I'm not here, at least yet, Advocating that Christians should be completely apolitical. But I do believe that some of us give far too much time and energy and value to politics. I do believe that many of us are allowing our allegiances and affections and values to be undiscipled by people on the right and people on the left. But as with any vocation or sphere of life, as followers of Jesus, in determining whether or how we engage with the empire, there's some questions that we need to ask. Can I engage with this arena of life without betraying my Christian virtues? Can I engage in this arena of life while being radically faithful to the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Can I do it while maintaining the fruits of the Spirit? And if not, cut ties, walk away. Now, sure, politics are important. At least they feel important. But they are not ultimately important. The most important thing in the world is what God is doing in it. Do you believe that? The most important thing in the world is what God is doing in it. And how God is doing what God is doing. Now, some may be inclined to respond, but John, America is a Christian nation. Isn't this an exceptional case? Aren't we the city shining on the hill? But for, like, like, honestly, candidly, I ask, but what does it even mean that we're a Christian nation? Does it mean that we've collectively bound ourselves to obeying the Sermon on the Mount? To turning the other cheek? to praying, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, to control our lust and our anger and honor our commitments, to have like a, a rich secret life and a humble public life? I mean, is that what we mean by a Christian nation? Do we mean that we're striving together to live according to the Ten Commandments? Or when a politician says he's for faith and freedom, like what are they even talking about if, if they, in their behavior they betray the whole character and ethos of Christ? Are talking about a politician? Are you talking about a nation? What, does it, what are we even talking about if it's not this? If it's not the sermon? If it's not the Ten Commandments? If it's not the Lord's Prayer? I am enormously grateful to be a citizen of this country, and I'm grateful for the many liberties that it allows us, but we must recognize that America is not the kingdom of God. No nation, state, nor empire deserves our first allegiance. So I echo the songwriter. My first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood, but to a king and a kingdom. And his kingdom will have no end. We're supposed to be different, y'all. Jesus said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? their high officials exercise authority but not so with you whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant that's greatness whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many like we're a part of a different kingdom embedded in the middle of these empires of the world. But like we're meant to be ambassadors, strangers, resident aliens, telling a different story not only in our beliefs but in our behavior, in our life together. Empires are built and sustained on the death of their enemies, but God's kingdom has been built by giving His life for His enemies. Now, some of you may be new to church. You're like, dang, he was (laughs) heavy-handed. We often laugh more. (laughs) I want you to hear the spirit in which I'm saying this today. I could care less about American politics. Like, I could care less about, like, being a champion of the right or against the left or, like, you know, I could, I could care less about conservative versus progressive and for the kingdom of God. In my calling, like, like, as a pastor, the way that I understand my responsibility to God and to you is to be a truth teller. Colossians 1:28 and 29. He is the one we proclaim teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everyone fully mature in Christ. He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. I'm not a culture warrior. I'm not talking about what's going on like out there. I'm talking about the people of God living into Christian maturity and having undefiled allegiance to Christ and King, to Christ and kingdom. That's what I'm contending for here. The psalmist says some trust in princes, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the Lord our God. Where, where are you investing your trust? Do you have like, like diversified assets? Well, I've got like 30% on God, hoping that works out. But if it doesn't, I've got another 70% over here. Man, the way of Jesus, the early church, like there's no, there's no reason to believe that Caesar has the mind of Christ. Now, so we have to give ourselves completely to Him. Where is your hope? Are you giving ultimate hope toward princes and chariots, toward politicians and legislations, your trust in the Lord our God? Often our emotions give the tell, the sign where we're putting our trust. The degree to which we get emotionally affected by like, politics or by politicians often shows like we've got a lot invested there. To say in the first centuries that Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar is not. Have you allowed yourself to be a believer in Jesus, but you've not really taken to heart his commission? It says, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, ultimately, this conversation, though some of you may be thinking I'm going this direction, is not anti-American, not the least. I think an undefiled church is the greatest gift, gift to give all the nations of the world. I think the greatest way that we can love our neighbor is to love God truly first. And I think Christians just have to exist in no man's land politically because we're following like, the, the Savior who was crucified by the empire. We're meant to be different. We're following the marching orders of a different kind of king who rules so differently than the emperor. It's like, like there was a quote in the early church talking about philosophy and and um, and faith. They said, "What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? You know, what is the way of Jesus to do with the way of like Paul, American politics? Like the two don't work together." It's an invitation to radical faithfulness in Jesus to laying down our altar allegiances and our rival allegiances, to recognize the ways in which we've been undiscipled and to resolve together as individuals and as people to follow the way of faithfulness with God's help by the power of the Holy Spirit in community together. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we cannot obey your commands apart from the work of your Spirit. I think of Psalm 19. Who can discern their own errors? Lord, we don't even know the degree to which our allegiances have been defiled. We can't even discern the degree to which we're, we're like we're ultimately disciples of our politics or pundits. We, like, we're blind to it. So Lord, would you give us not only a revelation of ourself, but a revelation of like, you and the life that you're calling us to? Jesus, as you called disciples, they began to make excuses. And you said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you come and follow me. Help us to hear these words echoing and reverberating through the chambers of our heart. Help us to, with with renewed vision and and, and courage, obey the teachings of Jesus. To be people shaped by the gospel. To live as a creative minority, holding on to the way, like like the truth of the God who made the world and defines for us right and wrong. Embracing difficulty and opposition and misunderstanding is like part of the cost of following. God, we need you. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here, on on these gifts at communion that we receive? Make them be for us so much more than just a memorial meal, but a means by which we experience the empowerment of the risen Christ who invites us to come and follow and learn from him how to be well. Jesus, we need you. We love you. Help us to patiently trust in your work and abandon outcomes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.